This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Servile State by Hilaire Belloc Section 7 Observe the effect of all this. All over England, men who already held in virtually absolute property from one quarter to one third of the soil, and the ploughs, and the barns of a village, became possessed in a very few years in a further great section of the means of production, which turned the scale wholly in their favour. They added to that third a new and extra fifth. They became at a blow the owners of half the land. In many centres of capital importance they had come to own more than half the land. They were in many districts not only the unquestioned superiors, but the economic masters of the rest of the community. They could buy to the greatest advantage. They were strictly competitive, getting every shilling of due and of rent, where the old clerical landlords had been customary, leaving much to the tenant. They began to fill the universities, the judiciary, the crown less and less decided between great and small. More and more the great could decide in their own favour. They soon possessed by these operations the bulk of the means of production, and they immediately began the process of eating up the small independent men, and gradually forming those great estates, which in the course of a few generations became identical with the village itself. All over England you may notice that the greater squires' houses date from this revolution or after it. The manorial house, the house of the local great man as it was in the Middle Ages, survives here and there to show of what immense effect this revolution was. The low-timbered place with its steadings and outbuildings, only a larger farmhouse among the other farmhouses, is turned after the Reformation, and thenceforward into a palace save where great castles which were only held of the crown and not owned made an exception the pre-reformation gentry lived as rich men richer than but not the masters of other farmers around them after the reformation there began to arise all over england those great country houses which rapidly became the typical centres of english agricultural life the process was in full swing before henry died Unfortunately for England, he left as his heir a sickly child, during the six years of whose reign, from 1547 to 1553, the loot went on at an appalling rate. When he died and Mary came to the throne, it was nearly completed. A mass of new families had arisen, wealthy out of all proportion to anything which the older England had known, and bound by a common interest to the older families which had joined in the grab. Every single man who sat in Parliament for a county required his price for voting the dissolution of the monasteries. Every single man received it. A list of the members of the dissolution Parliament is enough to prove this, and apart from their power in Parliament, this class had a hundred other ways of insisting on their will. The Howards, already of some lineage, and the Cavendishes, the Cecils, the Russells, and fifty other new families, thus rose upon the ruins of religion, and the process went steadily on until about one hundred years after its inception. The whole face of England was changed.
in the place of a powerful crown disposing of revenues far greater than that of any subject you had a crown at its wit's end for money and dominated by subjects some of whom were its equals in wealth and who could especially through the action of parliament which they now controlled do much what they willed with government in other words by the first third of the seventeenth century by sixteen thirty the economic revolution was finally accomplished and the new economic reality thrusting itself upon the old traditions of england was a powerful oligarchy of large owners overshadowing an impoverished and dwindled monarchy other causes had contributed to this deplorable result the change in the value of money had hit the crown very hard the peculiar history of the Tudor family, their violent passions, their lack of resolution, and of any continuous policy, to some extent the character of Charles I himself, and many another subsidiary cause may be quoted. But the great main fact upon which the whole thing is dependent is the fact that the monastic lands, at least a fifth of the wealth of the country, have been transferred to the great landowners, and that this transference had tipped the scale over entirely in their favour as against the peasantry. The diminished and impoverished crown could no longer stand. It fought against the new wealth, the struggle of the civil wars. It was utterly defeated, and when a final settlement was arrived in 1660, you have all the realities of power in the hands of a small, powerful class of wealthy men the king still surrounded by the forms and traditions of his old power but in practice a salaried puppet and in that economic world which underlies all political appearances the great dominating note was that a few wealthy families had got hold of the bulk of the means the purchasing power of money fell during this century to about a third of its original standard say would perch under charles i the necessities which would have purchased under Henry the Seventh. Nearly all the receipts of the crown were customary. Most of its expenses were competitive. It continued to get, but where it was gradually compelled to pay out of production in England, while the same families exercised all local administrative power, and were moreover the judges of higher education, the church and the generals, they quite overshadowed what was left of central government in the country take as a starting point for what followed the date seventeen hundred by that time more than half of the english were dispossessed of capital and of land not one man in two even if you reckon the very small owners inhabited a house of which he was the secure possessor or tilled land from which he could not be turned off such a proportion may seem to us today a wonderfully free arrangement and certainly if nearly one half of our population were possessed of the means of production we should be in a very different situation from that in which we find ourselves. But the point to seize is that, though the bad business was very far from completion in or about the year 1700, yet by that date England had already become capitalist. She had already permitted a vast section of her population to become proletarian. And it is this, and not the so-called industrial revolution, a later thing, which accounts for the terrible social condition in which we find ourselves today. How true this is, what I still have to say in this section will prove. In an England thus already cursed, 
with very large proletariat class, and in an England already directed by a dominating capitalist class possessing the means of production, there came a great industrial development. Had that industrial development come upon a people economically free, it would have taken a cooperative form. Coming as it did upon a people which had already largely lost its economic freedom, it took at its very origin a capitalist form, and this form it has retained, expanded, and perfected throughout two hundred years. It was in England that the industrial system arose. It was in England that all its traditions and habits were formed. And because the England in which it arose was already a capitalist England, modern industrialism, wherever you see it at work today, having spread from England, has proceeded upon the capitalist model. It was in 1705 that the first practical steam engine, Newcomens, was set up to work. The life of a man elapsed before this invention was made. By Watt's introduction of the condenser into the great instrument of production, which has transformed our industry. But in those sixty years, all the origins of the industrial system are to be discovered. It was just before Watt's patent that Hargreaves spinning jenny appeared. Thirty years earlier, Abraham Darby of Colebrook Dale, at the end of a long series of experiments which had covered more than a century, smelted iron ore successfully with coke. Not twenty years later, King introduced the flying shuttle the first great improvement in the handloom, and in general the period covered by such a life as that of Dr. Johnson, born just after Newcomen's engine was first set in full blast, covers the great transformation of England. A man who, as a child, could remember the last years of Queen Anne, and who lived to the eve of the French Revolution, saw passing before his eyes the change which transformed English society and has led it to the expansion and peril in which we see it today. What was the characteristic mark of that half-century and more? Why did the new inventions give us the form of society now known and hated under the name of industrial? Why did the vast increase in the powers of production, in population, and in accumulation of wealth turn the mass of Englishmen into a poverty-stricken proletariat, cut off the rich from the rest of the nation, and develop to the full all the evils which we associate with the capitalist state. To that question an answer, almost as universal as it is unintelligent, has been given. That answer is not only unintelligent, but false, and it will be my business here to show how false it is. The answer, so provided in innumerable textbooks and taken almost as a commonplace in our universities, is that the new methods of production, the new machinery, the new implements fatally and of themselves developed a capitalist state in which a few should own the means of production and the mass should be the proletariat. The new instruments, it is pointed out, were on so vastly greater a scale than the old, and they were so much more expensive, that the small man could not afford them, while the rich man who could afford them ate up by his competition and reduced from the position of small owner to that of a wage earner his insufficiently equipped competitor, who still attempted to struggle on with the older and cheaper tools. To this, we are told, the advantages of concentration were added in favor of the larger owner against the small. Not only were the new instruments expensive, 
almost in proportion to their efficiency, but especially after the introduction of steam, they were efficient in proportion to their concentration in few places and under the direction of a few men. Under the effects of such false arguments as these, we have been taught to believe that the horrors of the industrial system were a blind and necessary product of material and impersonal forces, and that wherever the steam engine, the power loom, the blast furnace, and the rest were introduced, there fatally would soon appear a little group of owners exploiting a vast majority of the dispossessed. It is astonishing that a statement so unhistorical should have gained so general credence. Indeed, were the main truths of English history taught in our schools and universities today, were educated men familiar with the determining and major facts of the national past, such follies could never have taken root. The vast growth of the proletariat, the concentration of ownership into the hands of a few owners, and the exploitation of those owners of the mass of the community, had no fatal or necessary connection with the discovery of new and perpetually improving methods of production. The evil preceded indirect historical sequence, preceded patently and demonstrably from the fact that England, the seed plot of the industrial system, was already captured by a wealthy oligarchy before the series of great discoveries began. Considering what way the industrial system developed upon capitalist lines, why were a few rich men put with such ease into possession of the new methods? Why was it normal and natural in their eyes and in that of the contemporary society that those who produced the new wealth with the new machinery should be proletarian and dispossessed, simply because England, upon which the new discoveries had come, was already in England owned as to its soil and accumulations of wealth by a small minority. It was already England, in which perhaps half the whole population was proletarian and a medium for exploitation ready to hand. When any one of the new industries was launched, it had to be capitalized, that is, accumulated wealth from some source or other had to be found which would support labor in the process of production until that process should be complete. Someone must find the corn and the meat and the housing and the clothing by which should be supported between the extraction of the raw material and the moment when the consumption of the finished article could begin. The human agents which dealt with that raw material and turned it into the finished product. Had property been well distributed, protected by cooperative guilds, fenced round and supported by custom and by the autonomy of great artisan corporations, those accumulations of wealth necessary for the launching of each new method of production and for each new perfection of it would have been discovered in the mass of small owners. Their corporations, their little parcels of wealth, combined, would have furnished the capitalization required for the new process, and men already owners would, as one invention succeeded another, have increased the total wealth of the community without disturbing the balance of distribution. There is no conceivable link in reason or in experience which binds the capitalization of a new process with the idea of a few employing owners and a mass of employed non-owners working at a wage. Such great discoveries coming in a society like that of the thirteenth century would have blessed and enriched mankind. Coming upon the diseased moral conditions of the eighteenth century in this country, they proved a curse.
the end of section seven